Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Native Habitat, Preserving the Wetlands of the World, Host Carrie Kim will be interviewing John Via, Executive Director of the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy on the Orange County coast of California. The Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy is a nonprofit founded in 1985 with the goal of acquiring, restoring, and protecting the coastal wetlands on the Orange County coast for future generations. The Huntington Beach Wetlands is part of a system that once spanned nearly 3,000 acres. A precious 180 acres now remain in southeast Huntington Beach, where the Santa Ana River meets the Pacific Ocean. This is Carrie Kim. Listeners, mahalo for joining us to speak about the vital importance of wetlands to overall ecosystem function. We thank the Tongva ancestors for their enduring presence, legacy, and stewardship of the region where we are. Our show comes to you from the ancestral lands of the Tongva. And we also honor and thank the Ahashiman Nation as well, as we will be speaking much about the Huntington Beach area, which is part of their homelands. We encourage listeners to support Native First Nations and their continued stewardship wherever you live. Wetlands are vital to our existence and benefit the ecosystem at large with habitat for wildlife, slowing water flows, reducing soil erosion, storing water, recharging groundwater, and aiding nutrient cycle, to name a few. Some studies have reported wetland loss rates in California are at 90%. The loss in La Cienega Wetland Complex has been compromised by urbanization, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta by agriculture and flood protection, the San Pablo Bay by gold mining and diking, and the Central Valley by turning floodplains into farmland. Urban infrastructure, oil extraction, groundwater withdrawals, and pollution can all erode wetlands, which might include vernal or seasonal pools, riparian habitat, and coastal wetlands. At the time of Spanish colonization, it's estimated that roughly 7 million acres of vernal pools once existed here. There are less than 13% remaining today. The urgency continues for us to preserve nature's delicate balance. Around the world, many have committed themselves to restoring and regenerating nature to the best of our abilities. May we each collectively take up this responsibility for future generations. Today, we welcome John Villa, Executive Director of the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy, to share deep insights into the value and urgent need to protect local and global wetlands. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much, Carrie. I appreciate you uh, wanting to have me uh, on your show. So thank you very much. You know, could you first begin by telling us a bit of the history 
of the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy and why you got involved. Sure. So the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy is actually a 501c3 nonprofit. It started by a number of uh, concerned citizens that didn't want to see our coastal wetlands in southeast Huntington Beach turn into strip malls, hotels, parks, anything like that. They wanted to do what they could to conserve that natural uh, area that was down there. We've been in existence for 37 years with the intent of buying property. Key phrase here, restoring it back to wetlands Mm -hmm. and maintaining it. And the reason I say restoring it back to wetlands is there used to be 2,900 acres of wetlands in southeastern Huntington Beach. It Mm -hmm. went from Beach Boulevard to the Costa Mesa Bluff and went in, uh, if you're not familiar with the area, it went in about a half a mile. That was all underwater. Wow. And then in the 1920s, they discovered oil in Huntington Beach, and they built up a maintenance road that uh, had railroad tracks and a road to so they could put lumber across it and metal for the oil rigs. That's now PCH. Mm-hmm. That's what stopped the saltwater from coming in. Mm-hmm. And then there's a reason why we're called Orange County, and that used to be it used to have a lot of agriculture within the county of Orange, primarily orange orchards, but there was a lot of other agriculture that that was existed as well. So we have what runs through our property uh, on the northern, excuse me, on the eastern edge. It's called the Santa Ana Riverbed. Mm-hmm. It actually takes uh, headwaters from the mountains as snow and runoff occurs, takes you through San Bernardino County, Riverside County, and Orange County. That how it goes through the Santa Ana Riverbed, and that's how it exits to the ocean. Well, Orange County forefathers decided that they wanted to, to cement off both sides <laughs> to stop the agriculture from being flooded through heavy rains and also through other natural effects. So when they did that, that stopped the fresh water from coming in. Mm-hmm. So basically that dried up the entire area of 2,900 acres of Southeast Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we worked to uh, attain the funding to acquire the property, went through all the permitting authorities so we could restore it, and we maintained it. Like I said, we've been doing that for 37 years. Mm-hmm. Part of that also worked with entities like Orange County Public Works because we have two flood channels that go into our marshes, and they used to turn and go directly east and empty into the Santa Ana Riverbed. What we did is we had them turn it at the very end, go through our acquisition we had in, in 86 called the Talbert Marsh, and that mm-hmm. turned as an exit to the ocean, but that's also how we get all of our ocean water. Mm-hmm. So that is what started the whole process for us 37 years ago. Well, of that 2,900 acres, I mean, how much of that still is really existent? Because I thought that it had reduced down to really like very, very small amount of acreage. Yeah, right now what we've restored is 127 acres back to coastal wetlands, Mm -hmm. complete fully tidal uh, wetlands. And we just acquired the last remaining 49 acres that are restorable. And we'll be restoring those to a muted tidal influence over the next three to five years. So we'll have a total of 190 acres that are going to be restored. So we're going to be just under 6% of what used to be there. Wow. Is that all that can actually be reclaimed as wetlands given development that is there and existing infrastructure that's there now? Yes, at this time that is. But it really depends on how much you how much faith you read into the rising sea level issues, Mm -hmm. because that could cause more. Okay. But at this time, the the last piece of property we just bought of 49 acres is the currently the last piece of property in southeastern Huntington Beach that's convertible back to a wetland. Mm. 
You know, I think it's important to also go back to explaining the sensitive ecology of marshes, wetlands in general, what they actually do as far as ecosystem function. Could you explain that for listeners so they have a better, a greater appreciation for what the vital importance of wetlands? Sure. And in your definition that you had of wetlands kit on all the the key facts, we'll talk about those again. I mean, first and foremost, it's a habitat for nature. Mm-hmm. We have anywhere from six to eight either endangered or threatened species that come into our marshes on an annual basis, mm-hmm. uh, birds that come through there. So we're in the Pacific Flyway, so it's a great place for them to stop as they're heading north or as they're heading south. And we also see a lot of nesting that occurs in our marshes. If the marshes weren't there, some of those species wouldn't have a, a, a place for them to nest. Mm-hmm. A good example of that is the uh, California snowy plover. Mm-hmm. This is on the in, uh, threatened list. Um, the biggest problem that they have is uh, mom plover doesn't build a nest as a typical nest would be. She basically goes to the sandy beaches, twists her body around to make a divot, and that's where she lays her eggs. Mm-hmm. But what's happening to our beaches? They're all being taken over by humans. A lot of loud noise, people walking dogs, especially now with a lot of electric bikes, more noise. Um, So we're seeing less and less of those within the beaches. Uh, On an average year in uh, Huntington Beach State Beaches, we might see, and that's about 17 miles long, we might see four to five snowy plover nests within the beaches. Compared to what? I mean, historically. Let me give you another little tidbit. First year of COVID, we had 15 nests up here because mm-hmm. nobody was at the beaches. Right. Everybody was home. Mm-hmm. So I think we'd see a, a bigger influx of the amount of that particular threatened species if we had more habitat for them to be able to uh, build their nest or, in her case, make the divot in the sand. So mm-hmm. what we provide in a, a wetlands environment are those beaches. All of our our islands within our marshes, the way we've designed them, there's a little bit of sand on every single one of them, all along the edges. So we're providing miles worth of beaches within our marshes, just the way we, we built them on purpose. Mm-hmm. So species protection is a great thing because in other cases with endangered species, they use specific plants to help so that for they can build a nest, but also to keep them away from predators that are mm-hmm. trying to go after them and also their nest. Mm-hmm. So number one, that, that's the main reason we do what we do is protecting the, the wildlife that goes uh, and uses our, our habitat for uh, nesting and for raising their young. Mm-hmm. And then what about all the issues around water and reducing erosion and helping with water flows, flood protection, all these other issues that the wetlands help Great point. Like I mentioned, it used to be 2,900 acres. Mm-hmm. If you look at a lot of the neighborhoods with just surrounding uh, our uh, wetlands to the north, and, and I say to the north because we're in a weird situation in southeast Huntington Beach because our beaches actually face south. They don't face west mm-hmm. just because the the way the, the curvature does in the beach. So the homes to the north of us for the first maybe quarter mile to half a mile most of those streets are at sea level or just barely above sea level. So if we have a major rain issue, what would normally happen is it would flood. Mm-hmm. But because we have a number of flood channels within the city, mm-hmm. all of the flood channels or all the, the city streets drain to the channels, which are lower than sea level, all mm-hmm. that drains to the marshes, and the marshes act as the catch basin. 
Mm-hmm. So all that water comes in and it just fills up our marsh. Right. And it waits till the next low, low tide. And then when that low tide comes in, it all goes out to the ocean. Mm-hmm. So that's another effect that a, a wetlands does is it does act as that catch basin for higher elevation areas around it so it doesn't get flooded. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the issue around stormwater and the marshes? Biggest issue we have there is it's unfortunately not clean water. Mm-hmm. You get runoff that comes off the street. So the first thing we all know, whenever it rains for the first time in a season, you never want to stop very fast at an intersection. Mm-hmm. Is all the oil that's on the ground. Well, guess where that water, that water and oil mixture is going? It's going down the drains. It's hitting the flood channel. It's coming to the ocean. That's so that's an unfortunate thing for us. Is that comes in and there's no natural way to clean it, as it's just in the water. Mm-hmm. With the other effect we get, and you mentioned it also in your, your opening remarks, is pollution. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pollution within those channels. And one of the things we've had to face in, in uh, Southern California and a lot of other areas, I don't want to just say Southern California, is we get a lot of homeless mm-hmm. that um, sleep within those those areas. Well, when a uh, uh, rain occurs, especially if it is a, a, a really good rain, guess where all that trash goes down? It goes right down those flood channels directly in our marshes. Right. So even at 127 acres right now that we've uh, converted back to a wetlands, we probably pull five, five to 6,000 pounds of trash a year out of our marshes. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Can you talk about the way the marshes also filter and purify water? I mean, I don't know to what extent that's really possible when the water is as polluted as it is these days. But if you could speak to sure. Uh, Effect. So, yeah, so think about an, a, a filter on an aquarium or a filter on a pool. Mm-hmm. So in a pool or jacuzzi is diatomaceous earth. In an aquarium, it's probably a charcoal filter. The water goes through that medium. The medium itself cleanses the water, and it comes back out. The, the filter goes back into the larger container, pool, jacuzzi, or, or aquarium. It actually is cleaner than when it got sucked out of there. That's kind of how the way a marsh works. So in this case, it's gravity. So mm-hmm. gravity will naturally pull water through the soil. The soil acts similarly as a diatomaceous earth or the charcoal. The heavier particles stay on the surface. So mm-hmm. when the water gets pulled down through the soil itself. When it goes into our aqua filter below, it's actually cleaner than it came into the marshes. So it's a natural way to clean the water out, like I said, similar to a, a filter on a pool or a jacuzzi or a, an aquarium. Though it's an unbelievable how important the wetlands are to our ecosystem function, but mm-hmm. again, they are underappreciated. Many people undervalue their criticality, I want to say. But I, you know, I want to go back also to have you explain what is the difference between a marsh and a wetlands, just it's very basic, but I think it's also important to not take some of these things uh, for granted that we know what we're talking about. So technically they're one and the same. Okay. So a marsh is just a definition of, of, of an area that has water in it. It could be freshwater, it could be saltwater that's in there. What the key is to it is, is, is it a wetlands or not? Mm-hmm. By definition, a wetlands has to maintain water within it at all times in a 24-hour period. It can never go dry. Uh-huh. So a marsh could. Right. So depending on the type of marsh you have, especially if it's a freshwater marsh, it could drain, especially during the summer months, and dry out. 
Mm-hmm. If there's not enough water going into the, the, the basin, for example, to hold and maintain water there. In our case with the wetlands, our center channels are two feet below sea level. So we always maintain. Even mm-hmm. when we get a low tide or even an extreme low tide, there's always water in our marsh. So that's the difference between a marsh and a wetland. Mm-hmm. Could you explain some of the different types of wetlands just to give a few examples as well? So what the way we normally look at it, the, the term we use in the, the, the business is more of an estuary, more than it, we, we call it a, a wetlands or a marsh. Okay. By definition, they're all the same thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in our case, with an estuary or with a marsh, uh, of the wetland, uh, saltwater marsh, all of our water is tidally influenced and it comes from the ocean. Mm-hmm. So when you look at our marshes, 100% of the, the water in there is salt water with the very few times that we actually do get rain in Southern California. <laughs> then you might get the one or 2% of fresh water coming in. That's where you get brackish water. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it's all salt water. Mm-hmm. So a wetlands, in our case, it, it has to be tidally influenced, has to remain mm-hmm. wet at all time, can never go dry. And the very, the uh, variation of water levels within our marsh is tidal dependent. Mm-hmm. So because we get too high tides and too light, low tides a day on the Pacific coast, that's what happens in a marsh. It goes up and it goes down and it goes up and down twice a day. Right. And then depending on the time of year, what phase of the moon we are, we can also get king tides, which means we get an increased amount of water that goes in our marshes as well. You know, could you talk about when you did describe the fully tidal wetlands, what that actually means when you say they are restored to being fully tidal wetlands? Yeah, so I'll explain to you in tidal and muted tide. So in the case of a tidal wetland, fully tidal, that means all of our water in our marshes vary in height and elevation, just like the tide out in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. They go up twice, they go down twice. Okay. There's a difference in timing just because of the distance the water has to travel. So normally it would have gone south to north. Right. Now it has to go south to north and go west, and they go west, and they go west. <laughs> That's how we built the marshes, right. so we only had one inlet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. muted tide means you control the tide goes in. You either control at a low level or you control at a high level. Okay. So when we design Newland Marsh, that's going to be a muted tide. And we're going to use tidal gauge for that so that the water at the low end as we go to a low tide will never get lower than maybe a foot, foot and a half above sea level. And then the tide gates will open so that when tide goes up, they'll close at the upper level at about four and a half feet. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if we have a regular tide, high tide of five and a half feet or a king tide of seven feet. Those particular marshes will never get higher than the highest level of four and a half feet. Mm-hmm. The reason we did that is because we were adjacent to Beach Boulevard, Pacific Coast Highway, right. Newland Street, two housing tracks, and mm-hmm. also a, a trailer park. And if we didn't do that, there would be too much of risk of flooding, especially mm-hmm. during a king tide. So that's what a muted tide is, is we can control the levels at whatever levels we want using these tidal gauges. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say about the way development has gone along the coast? Because Obviously, there's many areas, wetlands, floodplains, where we never should have built in the first place. I mean, I don't know if you have any commentary on that. Maybe it's kind of one of these things that we can't change the past to some degree. Yeah, we can't change the uh, the past. All we can do is look for the future. If things come up, the good thing is nowadays it has to be on the coastal development plan. 
it has to be approved by the state of California. And if it's zoned as coastal, it really takes a lot to get it to move off of that dime and get it off of being zoned as coastal. So that's the good news is we finally took some time to say, don't do it anymore. So mm -hmm. I think it'd be really difficult for somebody to come in and try to say, we want to take over this property. It's across PCH. It happens to be a great place that we could put a, uh, you know, 10, 20 story hotel. But in order to do that, you'd have to get it rezoned. And I think it'd be really difficult to rezone it at this time in our in our history. So the re so zoning it as coastal does give it a certain amount of protection in any case. Yeah, because anybody that's going to want to try to rezone it, they, that's going to be an uphill battle and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, you know, what mm -hmm. would you say that the public really needs to know to better care for and protect and serve wetland areas? Is it just a matter of education? I mean, literally. Yeah, there's a lot of education that needs to take place, and we're doing a lot of that with uh, local schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, elementary, middle school, and high school. But we're also doing it at the adult level. You know, what actions would you recommend for just your average individual who, what, what actions should they undertake to help preserve wetlands in their daily life? What are some of the things that you would encourage people to do? Well, some of the simple things we talked about runoff uh, going in, people don't realize that when they're walking down the street and they see a storm drain and there's a sign there that says this drains to the ocean, guess what? It really does. <laughs> so any trash that they have, anything that they're doing from washing their cars to putting fertilizer on their lawn, when that when they wash their cars and that runoff goes down the storm drains, or they water, they put the fertilizer on, the, on their grass, and then they water it, and they get runoff that goes down. That all is going to end up at the, in the ocean, or in our cases, in our marshes first before it goes to the ocean. Mm -hmm. I don't think people realize how they at home could impact the wetlands in the ocean because, hey, I live 10 miles away. How could what I'm doing here possibly have anything to do with the marshes? And they don't see it directly. I mean, I wonder what kind of, I mean, of course, we're talking about toxic chemical runoff. And what what kind of issues have you seen amongst the wildlife who are impacted by that kind of toxic water? We haven't seen, if you're, if you're looking at or talking about necessarily maybe deformations or anything like that, we haven't seen any of that. Mm -hmm. We work with a number of local universities, so they're doing everything from soil samples. They're taking clams and oysters and crabs out of the marshes, um, and they're looking at them. They're dissecting them. They're trying to see, is there anything going on with them? So we haven't seen too much of that. Mm -hmm. But in our case, we've only been doing that for the last 10 or 15 years since we do in our marshes. The effect has been going on a lot longer. Right. So what we don't know is what has happened over time. Right. And right now we may just be seeing a smaller amount of influential changes but we don't know long-term-wise what's happened. Or what the baseline has been years ago, right? Decades exactly, ago. exactly. Is the Bolsa Chica Ecological Reserve the same as the Huntington Wetlands? Are they different? Are they separate areas? It was not really. Yeah, they're, they're different. So the, the Bolsa Chica Wetlands are actually further west from where we are by about 10 miles. Okay. The differences are they're owned by the state of California. Mm -hmm. And there's three groups like us that educate the public, They'll do docent-led tours just like we do. They can do some minor things like trash pickup, maybe some weeding, but they can't do anything beyond that. 
I see. Anything that requires a restoration or a major maintenance activity where it requires permits, the state has to issue those, or go after and apply for those permits because the state is the landowner. These other three organizations that I was referring to are not. Mm-hmm. In our case, we own the property. Now, how obviously it would make sense for you two to work together. I don't know if that happens. Uh, we've been trying to do that over the years. It's a little bit difficult at times, just like any other 501c3. If you get two working together, they're all trying to figure out where that dollar is going to go to because we're all fighting for the same dollar. But I think we're finally overcoming that. I think we're finally getting into a position that we can go into this as a normal project that says, if we get dollars in, this is how much goes to you. This is how much goes to me. You develop what you're going to do under the grant. We develop what we're going to do under the grant. As long as we're working to that, we can we know up front how the dollars are going to be split. There's not going to be any issue. Right. The greater purpose is to be in alignment. So, John, we're going to take a short break right here, and sure. we'll come right back to talk more okay. about restoration in, in wetlands. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We are every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston and every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Native Habitat, preserving the wetlands of the world, with host Carrie Kim and guest John Via, Executive Director of the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy on the Orange County coast of California. In a 2018 article, the UN Climate Change News stated that wetlands, essential regulators of global climate, are disappearing three times faster than forests. And they also reported that nearly 35% of the world's wetlands were lost between 1970 and 2015. And that loss rate is continuing to accelerate annually ever since 2000. I wonder if you could comment on what we're seeing globally. I mean, obviously, it's not just a local issue. If you look at like the numbers you're just quoting, we are seeing that uh, on a worldwide basis. We're losing more and more wetlands. I think that the largest portion of that is due to just commercialization of the areas we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're seeing just in California alone, the amount of acreage that's there. Now, again, the good thing for us is we have California has developed a, a process that makes it much more difficult to try to build on those lands today, which didn't necessarily happen 20 years ago when the, whole thing of zoning as a, as a coastal was, was kind of new in, in the state. I think we're seeing more of that in a lot of other countries because they haven't developed such programs. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit easier in certain countries, especially certain countries. And, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll call it spade a spade where graft is um, a big graft is a graft. big thing within those countries. Okay. It's diff- It's easy to get around things in order to build whatever it is you want to build. Just pay someone. That's right. You know, and, and there's a lot of third world countries that that's the way they do business. Mm-hmm. So if those third world countries happen to be, you know, share a, a shoreline with an ocean, then that's mm-hmm. going to mean you're going to have diminishing wetlands and, and estuaries throughout the world. Yeah, you're seeing some changes as a result of global changes as far as um, temperatures. So 
But to a certain extent, some of that is it's taking it back. You know, we see rising sea level. Mm-hmm. There's a chance that our current uh, ocean view property is going to be really ocean view as it's <laughs> starting to creep up. Uh-huh. So I, I think we're going to see some changes over time, you know, good news, bad news, because right. it's bad news because of what it is. It's, you know, it's rising sea level, but mm-hmm. it's good news because it could potentially do that. Now, are we going to be smart enough that as we see that we start removing property mm-hmm. or are we going to be dumb enough to say, let's just put them all on stilts? Mm-hmm. Right. So okay. I think we're time was going to tell on that uh, of how we, we look at that. I know in our case in Southeast Huntington Beach, we're trying to find ways that maybe we can put up uh, a wall in our inlet that has tidal gauges. So that means all of our marshes will be muted tide versus fully tidal marshes. We'll be able to control the amount of water coming in at a maximum level using a tidal gate. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we're considering. But we still have things there called uh, State Beach and City Beach. Mm-hmm. And if they don't do anything to build up their berms in State Beach, it's all going to be for naught because it'll just come straight across the parking lot, across mm-hmm. PCH, and right across March. Mm-hmm. So we're working with the city, we're working with the state and the county, looking at right now, what do we do to develop plans for the future? How do we take care of that? How do we look at rising sea level over time? So, yeah, we're seeing a, a, a big change globally on the amount of acreage that is available for wetlands, which also means for the, the habitat for these animals. But I think there's an, a, enough areas, enough groups that are finally looking into this and seeing what they can do to stop that as far as uh, the commercialization of the shorelines. Unfortunately, I don't think it's enough. Right. Like I said, there's still a lot of other countries that, that aren't doing anything about it. I mean, I, I think it seems pretty unlikely, but are there any people who actually see the problem for what it is? There may be landowners or developers that actually see that they need to change what they're doing. I mean, is there any? So does anything like that exist? I know it's unlikely. Yeah, I, I'd like to say I, I'd love for that to be the case, but although I wear glasses, they're not rose tinted. <laughs> um, I was just hoping for. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people that are looking at it. I think there's a lot of people that are suggesting changes on how we address this issue. Is it getting to the entities that own the property that or want to expand on this property or build on this property? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that's happening yet. Well, it's kind of a strange thing because it, it seems like it, it's almost an eminent domain kind of an issue in a sense, but for nature, but for yes. the balance of nature that I'm sorry, this actually trumps your, landholding interest or, or, or whatnot, because it's for the benefit of the whole ecosystem. Right. Look at how many areas, well, just here in Southern California. I mean, I, I think that's where you're from. If I remember the, the area code, but I couldn't remember for sure. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Um, look at what happened to our air the first six months after COVID. Oh, started. after COVID. It's amazing. You can see the mountains. You can see Catalina. You can see the, the island on the other side of Catalina. I'm and nostalgic then, for those days. <laughs> yeah. And then with and in less time that it got clean, you couldn't see it again right. once people were back on the street. So yeah, I, I think there's there's moves to try to make some changes. I know a lot of scientists, biologists, uh, ecologists are doing whatever they can to try to get people to change their frame of mind. Um sometimes it takes 
I'll say this in, in a not too cheeky way. Sometimes it, it takes a change in the direction of our senior people in politics mm-hmm. to see that there are changes and not just look at them and say, well, I don't believe it. Right. Right. How many more disasters need to occur before that? Exactly. You know, or how many more species have to go extinct? Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to see if you could talk about a little bit about dewatering from groundwater withdrawals. I know you mentioned that commercialization is really one of the more most fundamental reasons why wetlands are eroded. But what about dewatering? Well, I guess it depends on on how you are referring to that, because if it's uh, in our case, in Huntington Beach, we have some deep freshwater wells mm-hmm. along the coastline, but that's to stop the saltwater from coming in. Okay. So in our case, we're not doing any anything like you're referring to because we have to have the water there. In other areas, does it have an effect? Yes, of course, by right. removing the water. Other Making the changes areas. within the structure of a, a wetlands, oh, there's a lot of factors that that can take take that in consideration. Mm-hmm. If you start removing some of the aqua filters and that means is, you know, one of the questions that has come up, does that cause a uh, harder draw on the water within a wetlands? Mm-hmm. I would think definitely. So, yeah. So if that's happening, is that also another reason why we're seeing less water in the wetlands? Mm-hmm. Now if it's tidal wetlands. I'd say there's something else going on. Right. Because that's tidally influenced. Mm-hmm. And I can't think, I can't imagine the draw of water right. um, because of uh, this process you're referring to ha- occurring when you've got the ocean to fill it back up again. Right. Would it be more like Central Valley? A yes. Like the Central Valley, yeah. Yeah, perfect yeah. example. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine that as floodplains, especially for anyone who drives through, drives on the five and sees the parched scenario that we see in the Central Valley today. But look at some of your history and see and go digging through there archaeologically and see how many uh, seashells used to be in that area. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you perceive as w- we've talked about that the commercialization is, is one of the greatest threats to wetlands now and, and also about how much of the wetlands can ever be reclaimed or regenerated. So how are you approaching? I mean, you have this last remaining 49 acres and then what, you know, is it kind of, you just wait to see what happens as far as being able to reclaim more lands to see what happens with sea level rise. I mean, what happens after those 49 acres, you just kind of hold steady with what, what we've got. No, no, no. I think a couple of things we're going to have to do is look at rising sea level, for example, what's that going to do in the area because that may give us more acreage that's available, shall we say. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the things we'll always look for is if there's opportunities. Uh, there's one small area within close by us that there's a freshwater catch basin. We're going to try to see what we can do to incorporate that into our marshes because when the freshwater goes into our marshes, it becomes brackish. It's not an issue. But right now, that's a catch basin for a lot of runoff. So we have to figure out is there a way that we can filter the water before it comes in. Other than that, for us, it's more of a, we we are mission statement has always been acquire, restore, maintain, and educate. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's restore, maintain, and and educate. Mm. In three to five years, it should be maintain and educate because we're going to do the last restoration. Mm-hmm. 
but the maintain maintenance portion is not just you know it's 190 acres there's always something to do that's a lot of acreage yes. yeah anything from do we look at raising some of our islands to make sure we have a, a larger area within our marshes for habitat for um for birds so they can nest mm-hmm. because in some cases we've seen seen some shrinking going on we want to do further studies in our marshes. We worked with uh, some student, uh, a student out of uh, University of Edinburgh a couple of years ago. And then two years ago, it was with a PhD student out of USC to look at the carbon produced, blue carbon produced in marshes as just a natural effect that they have, which reduces greenhouse gases. So we'd love to be able to work with some of these other schools and universities as, and use our, uh, our marshes as sort of a, that's their test tube. Yeah. Let them come in and experiment and see what we can do. Maybe there's something we can do with algaes for biofuel that Mm -hmm. we see in the marshes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually had a a professor at UCI contact me the other day and he says, I would love to see about which plants are edible when in the marshes and we can do, do build our own little cookbook. (laughs) That's good news and bad news. It's good news to see what it is. It's bad news that people start coming down and taking out plants. Sure, of course. <laughs> yeah, you want to create a demand like that. Right. And, you know, and you mentioned the Indian tribes earlier, and I also told them, go talk with them. If anybody should know what plants can and cannot be used that's edible, they should. They lived around here for de- sure. centuries. Of- they should have some experience in that. What about sedimentation and also water management? I mean, what do you have to say about these things? I don't know what sort of issues we deal with with sedimentation here. So sedimentation is a big issue with any estuary because it has a way to foul up the inlets. Mm-hmm. You know, in our case, it's really, it, it can be an issue. It has been an issue over the last five years because our inlet is again faces south mm-hmm. and our offshores seem to go west to east. So when we do have a major storm, especially if it's late in the season, December, January, February timeframe, and that offshores pull sand across our inlet, it can actually block it which we have an instance right now that is blocked and we can't open it, open it because it's, there's a lease term preserve right next to our inlet. Okay. And state coastal commission won't allow heavy machinery to go in there to open it for fear of disturbing those endangered species of bird. So how do you deal with that? Ultimately? We check uh, dissolved oxygen levels three times a week. We're looking at the possibility of uh, buying or renting some aerators that we can throw into the marsh to help mm-hmm. oxygenate the water. Mm-hmm. Look at the possibility. The city of Huntington Beach has said they're being willing to work with us to bring some fire trucks down and put a big fountain with a fire hose going into the marshes to help aerate the water. So mm-hmm. we're trying to come up with ingenious ways that we can do that to aerate the water for the fish in there and also so we don't lose any of the um, – the, um, we have eelgrass in our marsh, which is in the uh, mud flat, so it's all below sea level. So if we don't find a way to aerate that, it'll, it'll die off. So sedimentation is a big issue with us at our inlet, but it's also in, it's an issue within our marshes. Mm-hmm. Primarily the first marsh, which is Tauber Marsh, because that's where our inlet is. Mm-hmm. From there, when the water comes in, it's diverted either to the east or the west. If it goes to the east, it just kind of makes a little bit of a circle there. And we are seeing some buildup of sedimentation there. If it goes to the west, it gets broken up by the large rocks there called riprap, and it continues on, it goes underneath the bridge, and then it goes over Brookhurst Marsh. Well, by the time it gets to Magnolia Marsh, which is further down, most of that sediment is already settled. 
Mm-hmm. So all we're getting is water. So by the time you get to Magnolia Marsh, it's like filling up and emptying a bathtub. It's a slow mm-hmm. increase and a slow decrease. Mm-hmm. Well, would it be a lot easier if, if we could just allow nature to just take care of the balance? Right. Right. Could you speak about, well, well we're going to take a break in about a minute, but I know that um, the, I don't know if Magnolia Marsh, is that the first area that was restored? No, Talbert Marsh is our first one. Talbert Marsh was the first one. And when, when did that actually begin? 1986 is when we acquired it. We completed the uh, restoration in 88. So it was not that long, actually. No, 37 years ago was when we started. And shortly I mean, after that is when we did our. Yeah, but two years, 86 to 88, it doesn't seem that long, really. Well, some of it is, uh, had already been dredged because we, like I said, there was a flood channel was there. Mm-hmm. So the rest of it, we um, designed the channels and the islands within it, and then we just breached the um, inlet to allow the water to go into the marsh okay. or breach the, uh, the flood channel. So hold that thought, John. We're going to come right back and take another break and then speak a bit about Magnolia Marsh. Okay. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We are every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston and every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Native Habitat, preserving the wetlands of the world, with host Carrie Kim and guest John Via, Executive Director of the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy on the Orange County coast of California. So could you speak about the difference in acreage, John, between Magnolia Marsh and Talbert Marsh? Yeah, so Talbert Marsh, which was our first marsh, is roughly around 32 acres. It was our okay. first marsh. Uh, it took us, again, a couple of years to go through, do all the restoration on that one. The next one over is actually Brookhurst Marsh. Okay. Currently, that's our largest marsh. That is uh, approximately 40 acres. Okay. That was uh, acquired prior to just prior to 2006, and then we completed all the restoration in 2008 for that. Mm-hmm. We were lucky when we did that one because there was uh, things going in with our, our, our current um, – uh, the, the individuals that were in, our, in Washington, D.C. at the time that were looking for some shovel-ready projects, and we actually, <laughs> actually had some shovel-ready projects. Oh, so you so got funding. We speeded up the process, and we got funding for it. And then the Magnolia is the third marsh, and, and that's about 28 acres. So if you look at the three marshes, that makes up what we have right now. Okay. Um, and that's 120 acres of marsh total and seven acres of coastal dunes. So that's what makes wow. up our, our current three marshes that we have. So, yeah, it, it, it takes a while to go through. And and then there was a, a 2.4 acre that we got at the same time we did Magnolia Marsh. That was a different acquisition. That's what we call Upper Magnolia Marsh. So the difference in them is that they're all, again, tidally influenced because the water comes in from the Pacific Ocean into Talbert. And then mm-hmm. we channel it under a bridge at Brookhurst into Brookhurst Marsh under Magnolia into Magnolia Marsh. And then we're going to use a flood channel that co- empties into Magnolia Marsh to carry the salt water to our newly acquired 49 acres of Newland Marsh. What is has been the remaining impact to Talbert Marsh? I mean, many of us know that there was the recent major oil spill in Huntington Beach in October 2021. And so what was the impact? I, I understand that Talbert Marsh was most affected, No. 
Talbert Marsh was the most affected estuary in Southern California. And uh, of all of the marshes, we got inundated the worst and the most. So I have to give kudos out to the uh, the organizations I work with. I was at the Pacific Air Show. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's the Saturday that it occurred. Mm-hmm. And I was down at one of the major tents right there where ground zero was for the air show going on. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be standing one, one of, next to one of our council members. And he looked, got his phone, looked at it and said, John, I think you want to see this. And it was the announcement that was only going out, not even to the press, this was only going out within the city that this major incident occurred. Mm -hmm. That was about two o'clock on Saturday afternoon is when I was notified. So I contacted Orange County Public Works and the city and told Orange County Public Works, berm up the inlet. We've Mm -hmm. got to stop the inflow because we already knew it was going along the coastline and it was heading south. Um, By 10 o'clock the next day, we had a berm up we shut off our inlet. We only had two high tides that came with contaminated water, and we already had booms in place. Wow. And so it, did you feel that the damage was remedi- was largely remediated based on you know how it could have been much worse? It could have been a lot worse if we hadn't bermed up the inlet as fast as we did, and the fact we only had two high tides that came in. The other fact that, that we had it bermed up helped, also, uh, helped out as well, but it did get in all three marshes, who just wasn't Talbert. So um, I can't go into too much detail on that because I'm with the Just group talking with the responsible party. Okay, um, got it. Like but, yeah. I'm sure there's all of this. Yeah, so the, the, there, yeah, there's more to come. But there was a lot of damage that was done in all three marshes, but Talbert Marsh was the worst one. Mm-hmm. Understand. Understand that there's not much many, many details you can share about it at this point, but it was devastating for many of us to witness that, and I'm sure especially for you and and people like Debbie McGuire of the Wetlands and Wildlife Care Center, people who've been through it, and it's like the second time, you know, it's like it shouldn't be yep. happening. Could you speak about that major restoration project in 2006? I'm not sure if it's your wetlands exactly area, but when the tidal basin was reconnected with the ocean. That was Bolsa Chica. Oh, okay. okay. So they, like us, they have they share the same problem. They share the offshores that go west to east, and their inlet got completely closed off. Mm-hmm. So they had to work with not only State Coastal Commission, because those, those are the ones that they have to get the emergency permit for. The, the luxury that they don't have is they don't have a the, the California Least Turn Preserve right next to their inlet. Oh. I do. Right. I mean, you walk up from our inlet, go about 40 feet, and there's the California Lease Term Preserve. It's not very far. Okay. So they didn't have that to deal with. But what they did have to deal with, which is an issue, is like I said before, they don't own the marshes. So they had to work with the state of California, who does own the marshes, to work and get the permits without California State Coastal Commission. And then they got to get the funding. Now, in my case, Orange County Public Works owns that because it's an outlet for their flood channels. That's not the case of the inlet of uh, Bolsa Chica. And it costs almost a million dollars a year for them to open that up because they have to go and dredge uh-huh. it. And then uh-huh. they have to move the sand somewhere else. Mm-hmm. In our case, they do the dredging. And sometimes what they usually do is move the sand within State Beach. They don't have to take it anywhere else. But Orange County Public Works pays for that as because it's part of their flood channel. And that whole infrastructure we have in Huntington Beach to offload the higher waters in case we get a flood type incident occurring within the city city limits. 
You know, Kim Culpin, she's the executive director, or I'm not sure if she still is, of the Bosa Chica Land Trust. She shared a quote that even though that dam for them was removed, uh, that it was essentially created this man-made system and that it's not of nature's original design. Right. We've been talking about things, you know, when you're talking about doing these, uh, the muted, uh, muted tide and being able to control the tidal inflows and so forth. I mean, what do, you, what do you have to say about that? I mean, maybe it's the best that we can do given that we've destroyed so much of what was um, the original design of nature that we don't have a choice. We really don't. Both Bolsa Chica and us, and yeah, and Kim still with the the land trust, but one similarity that both wetlands shares is this little road called Pacific Coast Highway, oh. and, and that stopped all, all <laughs> that stopped the saltwater from coming in. Mm-hmm. It used to come directly. There was no city beach or state beach there. There was no Pacific Coast Highway. It went directly in and went directly out. So yes, it's all man-made, and when they put in the structures for the oil rigs in Bolsa Chica, like they did in our properties over in Southeast Huntington Beach, it rearranged things. Like I said, our water would have normally gone directly from the south to the north across what is now PCH. And we had to redirect ours to go south to north in Talbert, but then it goes east to west in order to get to Brookhurst. And then Mm -hmm. it goes east to west in order to get to Magnolia. And then it's going to go east northwest to get to Newland. So we're doing the best we can with what we have to work with. It's not the natural flow by any stretch of the imagination. But what we've been able to do is reintroduce tidal waters into the marshes and make it as close as we can to what was there. Is it identical? No way. And it never will be, yeah. Yeah. Well, depending on the rising sea level. (laughs) Are you banking on that, John? Well, I mean, I, I hearing it, it makes, I think makes me feel also like guilty in a way because we all, so many of people, especially if you're as someone who lives in California now, PCH, we're part of it. We're complicit in the whole thing, you know. And how far does it stretch? It stretches from San Diego all the way up to Oregon. I know. I mean, you know, it's basically how far back would we have had to have been from the coast to not have inflicted a lot of damage on the, on the coastline, really, you know? Yeah. When you think about it, it's, it's not as far as you think. I mean, um, if you go a mile or two inland on most places, you're at plus 10, plus 15, plus 20 feet above sea level. Mm-hmm. So we have seen a right, little bit of a rising sea level in the last decades. So just think about how much of that coastline would have been wetlands if we didn't build a PCH, if we didn't build homes and everything else all the way as far close as we can. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Could you speak about the uh, impact of drones in the wetlands? I mean, I know that there's been some issues with drones and. Yeah. Bolsa Chica has seen the brunt of that. They had that incident two years ago where, two drones uh, crashed together and luckily it was on an elegant turn nesting area and not a least turn nesting area uh, because that means the endangered species wasn't threatened. And the bad news is there was a lot of chicks that were lost because mom and dad flew away and they were gone too long. And unfortunately that the eggs didn't survive. In our case, we do see them, mm-hmm. but I'm lucky because right behind my office in Huntington beach is the AES power plant 
which you cannot, it's a no-fly zone. Okay. So that actually is a benefit, even though, I mean, it's probably got other issues. Yeah. But. yeah. So that that's good for us for drones. And, and typically, a lot of the drones that we see around us, it's people that would rather take pictures over the beach than over the wetlands. <laughs> right. So that's, that's so, a benefit. <laughs> yeah. We'll so it. we don't see that much of an issue. But, but the ones that happen in, in uh, Bolsa Chica, we uh-huh. still have never quite figured out what the heck were they filming? Mm, right. There's there was wildlife there. That was mm-hmm. it. It wasn't even an area where there were beachgoers or even people walking the path. We mm-hmm. couldn't figure out why they were there, and more importantly, how did two of them get there so they can crash into each other? <laughs> oh my god! It's right. just like what are the odds of that? Why for a commercial or something? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, drones can be an issue because especially during nesting season, it could cause problems with the the birds that are there. You know, at certain times of day, mom's sitting on the nest, dad is going out and foraging uh, at night. They kind of switch depending on the species. Well, if you're out there and you get low with a drone, you're going to scare off mom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if mom's away from the egg for too long of a period mm-hmm. and that egg isn't kept warm, they're not mm-hmm. going to be viable any longer. So that, that's an issue we've been seeing. But as the city, the county, the state has been doing whatever they can when they see a drone, especially if, even if it's over the beach is to stop it as soon as possible. And I know the city has been doing that as well because there's the whole privacy issues of the people that are out there with that. So we're really lucky is that we're in an area where I guess it's just not interesting enough for them. (laughs) Well, that's a blessing. Yeah. (laughs) John, the work that you were doing is so, um, it's so valuable. And we thank you so much for all of your efforts and the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy's efforts and all of those who are working on behalf of wetlands globally. I'm wondering if you could give listeners links. How can they um, contribute to what you're doing, to your efforts? Can they volunteer? What, are, what Where should they sure. contribute to you? So hbwetlands.org is our website and there's donate buttons on there. We also talk about the um, community events. Mm-hmm. I do a community event on our marsh uh, the third Saturday of the month from 9 to 12. Anybody can sign up, and they can go to a sister site that we use called ochabitats.org to log into there to look at the events. And they can also go to justserve.org, which is another uh, group that we use for that. I do a lot of things for individual organizations. I'll do special events for Wells Fargo, for UPS, if they want to get their employees out for AES. Oh, and for volunteering, got it. Yep, I do a lot of work with uh, local churches, local organizations and businesses. So if they want to do something special for their employees to come out, we'll do that as well. So we have a a lot of different ways that you can find out. Obviously, we have a Facebook page as well, and there's a donate button on there as well. But if, if corporate is looking to how do they get involved for their own philanthropic means, I'd be more than happy to talk to them and see how we work with them on the work we're doing and in the future we're doing, whether it's maintenance today, restoration tomorrow, or whatever the case may be. We thank you again, John. and hope you're, you're very welcome, Carrie. And um, I'll probably be in the office when you come by tomorrow, so maybe we can meet then. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, looking forward. Right. Thanks, Carrie. Take care, John. Thank you so much. 
Hey, listeners, if you want to check out the extended recording of this show, go to wherever you stream your podcast or our website, ecojusticeradio.org. Thank you to our guest, John Villa, Executive Director of the Huntington Beach Wetlands Conservancy, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Native Habitat, preserving the wetlands of the world. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast and share the episodes. You have been listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston. A project of SoCal 350, the show can also be found on all major podcast apps and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and JP Morris, executive producer Jack Eit, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours. 